0: In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. May His grace and His blessing be with us now, and unto the age of all ages. Amen. Uh, Tonight, dear brothers and sisters, I would like to speak to you, God willing, about the Orthodox Christian understanding of tribulation and suffering. As you saw in the email, all of us here can expect to be in the midst of a tribulation, an adversity, or some kind of suffering ...at one point or another, something that hurts us in the deepest way. And dealing with these things is an inescapable part of our lives in this world. As the righteous Job said in the Old Testament, uh, he was of course the icon of suffering par excellence. He said, "...for a mortal born of a woman is short-lived and full of wrath. He falls like a flower that has bloomed, and he departs like a shadow." and cannot continue. Our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom Job, of course, was a symbol, Job was a prefiguration, a shadow of Christ, He reiterates the same concept in the New Testament. He says in John 16, In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So we note that in both verses, there is this continuity of understanding that tribulation and affliction are certainties in the lives of men and women. And so consequently, it is good for us to meditate and prepare for tribulations and suffering as much as possible. Now, of course, in our modern society, we have been given a different message about tribulation and suffering. We've actually been misled. We're oftentimes taught to believe that tribulation and suffering are evils. That must be resisted and avoided at all costs. Life as the world teaches us should always be smooth and easy. And enforcing this attitude upon us the devil has succeeded in confusing us about the true nature of tribulation and suffering. And when we don't understand the true nature of tribulation and suffering we don't prepare tribulation and suffering. And in some cases, our lack of preparation comes out in the fact that many of us, when we have a tribulation, I actually heard this today on my way here from one of the youth of the church, when we don't prepare for them adequately, we start to blame God for tribulation and suffering. We say things like, how can a good God allow this? And the Holy Fathers teach us, of course, that this attitude of doubting God leads us to a catastrophe. One of the Fathers, Ava Isaac the Syrian, he said, once someone has doubted God's care for him, he immediately falls into a myriad of anxieties. So as faithful Orthodox Christians, we are called to understand the true nature of tribulation and suffering. So let's offer then two points on tribulation and suffering. Specifically they are, number one, the reasons why we have tribulation and suffering in the world. And secondly, how we can respond to them. First of all, let's speak about why we experience tribulation and suffering in the world. And I want to offer you three primary reasons. I am not representing that these are the only three I'm representing that these are the main three that we as Orthodox Christians can think of, but of course there are others. The first reason we have tribulations and suffering in the world today is quite simply sin. Sin. And by sin I don't necessarily mean our own individual sins, but I mean the fact that sin exists in the world. Now why does sin exist in the world, and why does the sin affect us in terms of tribulations and suffering to understand this point we must turn our attention to our ancestors adam and eve in the garden of eden we know from the book of genesis that god created the world from nothing the 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 word that's the phrase that's used is ex nihilo the latin phrase he created it from nothing and as he created every aspect of the world such as the heavens The earth, the plants, the animals, etc., God continually called his creation good. And finally, when he surveyed everything that he had created, God said it was very good. So every individual thing was good, and everything together was very good. And although God's creation was inherently good as he created it, something happened that ushered evil into the world. Adam, the first man, ultimately disobeyed God and fell into sin. And this proved to be a catastrophe for all mankind. Not just for Adam, but for all mankind. Because as the fathers teach us, Adam is the one man in whom all of mankind is represented. The early church fathers teach us that Adam is the universal man. The man who is the head of all Humanity. St. John Chrysostom, for example, tells us that God wanted to bind us together as human beings in the fact that we have one common ancestor, Adam. So whatever God gave to Adam, whatever commandments God gave to Adam, He gave to all of mankind. He gave to all of mankind. St. Gregory the Theologian, who is sometimes called St. Gregory Nazianzin or St. Gregory of Nazianzus, He teaches us that God gave Adam true freedom that consisted in obeying His holy commandments as we read in the Holy Scripture when God says to Adam, Of every tree which is in the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, of it ye shall not eat, but in whatsoever day ye eat of it, ye shall surely die. And by the way, this translation may sound older, archaic, the the English, and it's because I tend to use only the Septuagint in anything I prepare. Uh, We can have maybe another class, another lecture in the future on the Septuagint in the Orthodox Church. The Septuagint is the Greek Old Testament that was translated before the existing Old Testament we have in our Bibles. And it's a more accurate, more it's a canonical and more traditional version of the Old Testament. Uh, So that's why you're going to find maybe some of the things that I quote, will be a little bit different in the Protestant Bible that most of us have than the New King James Version. Uh, But, you know, if you have any questions about the Scripture, let me know, and, and I'll be happy to answer it. So this is what Adam was entrusted with. He was given perfect freedom in obeying God's commandments, and he was to enjoy the bliss of paradise. And since he is our common ancestor, this is what we were entrusted with as well. And in the context of this reality, we begin to understand how tribulation exists in the world because of sin. Because when our common ancestor Adam fell, we collectively fell as well. When God fashioned Adam and placed him in paradise, he lived in a very special way. He lived in constant meditation and prayer in the presence of God. He lived in the midst of honor and glory. St. Gregory tells us that the reason Adam and Eve did not know they were naked is because they were literally clothed with the grace of God. The grace of God was on them like a vestment. And they did not see each other naked because the grace of God covered them. Adam was healthy in a perfect sense. He was healthy in his mind And in His body, He was almost perfect in His nature. He was adorned with every virtue imaginable. And He enjoyed true freedom. And this was supposed to be His life for eternity. This was supposed to be the existence of mankind for all eternity. God did not create us for this. Look at your lives. Look at the world and what's going on in the world today. God did not create us for this. We brought this upon ourselves. Adam lived a completely different existence. We see this, of course, that when you think about the way Adam, Adam lived in this wonderful way, it's almost unimaginable to so many people today because they can't imagine a world without pain and suffering and tribulation. But the reality is that all of these things entered into the world when our common ancestor Adam disobeyed God and lost communion with Him. And for this reason we notice that the very first reference of pain and suffering in the universe is found in Genesis chapter 3, which describes God's punishment for Adam's sin. Here's what God says to Adam. Listen very carefully. Here's what He says. And and to Adam God said, Because thou hast hearkened to the voice of thy wife and eaten of the tree, concerning which I charge thee of it only not to eat, of that thou hast eaten. Cursed is the ground in thy labors. In pain shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. Now anyone who meditates on this passage will see Great suffering and tribulation in this passage. Cursed is the ground. In pain thou shalt eat. Thorns and thistles. This language is language of pain and suffering and tribulation. But before this point in Genesis 3, there is no reference whatsoever to pain and suffering in the world. It's only after the fall that we have this reference to pain and suffering. And this leads us to the natural conclusion that tribulation, suffering, and pain entered into the world through the sin of our ancestors, Adam and Eve. From that time until now, we as humans have continued to suffer. But that's not all. That's not all. Because the sin of Adam and Eve did not cause only human beings to suffer, but also the entire world. This, dear brothers and sisters, is why we have earthquakes and floods and tornadoes and tsunamis and all of the rest of the natural disasters in the world. Because all of creation is now suffering because of Adam and Eve's sin. The fathers teach us that Adam and Eve's sin was a cosmic catastrophe. It was a cosmic catastrophe that impacted all of God's creation. And St. Paul touches on this a little bit in his epistle to the Romans. He says this in Romans 8. He says, For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. And here's the part that I want you to focus on. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth hangs together until now. He's saying that the world is suffering and the world is waiting for the coming of Christ when the sons of God will be revealed. Because, of course, as we know from the Scripture, at that time, this world will pass away and a new world will come. So, St. Paul is saying that this world is groaning and laboring, it's suffering, waiting for that moment. Our Father among the saints, St. Cyril of Alexandria, he explains to us St. Paul's words in the following way. He says... For when the sons of God who have lived a righteous life have been transformed into glory from dishonor and from what is corruptible into what is incorruptible, then the creation too will be transformed into something better. So when we transform from dishonor to honor, when we are, of course, regenerated at the second coming of Christ, this world will be regenerated as well. And so this shows us that the entire creation fell along with Adam and Eve and that the entire creation is waiting for a time when the sons of God will be transformed. And so in all of this we see the first reason why tribulations, pain, and suffering exist in the world. They are the result of sin and the fall of humanity. Now some of you might be listening to this and you might be thinking, that's not fair. It's not fair. I wasn't born when Adam and Eve committed sin. I didn't exist. Why should I suffer because of their sin? And I want to say a few points here, because sometimes we uh, are misled by the Western, the Latin notions of original sin and similar doctrines, and we get caught up and we don't understand exactly what our church teaches So, why should all creation suffer because of what Adam and Eve didn't? The Holy Orthodox Church does not believe in original sin. We do not believe in original sin. In the West, among the Latins, original sin exists as a doctrine that was taken, it was compiled from the writings of St. Augustine and others. And basically, this doctrine says that we are guilty of the specific sin of Adam and Eve in disobeying God. The specific sin of their disobedience. And we are guilty when we're born, we're guilty of that sin, and we wash it away through baptism, right? We don't have this doctrine in the Orthodox Church. In the Orthodox Church, we believe that we inherited from Adam and Eve the state, the nature or maybe perhaps more properly, the sickness of sin. In his four discourses against the Arian St. Athanasius of Alexandria, he wrote, For as when Adam transgressed, his sin reached unto all men. And St. Cyril explains further, he says, Human nature has therefore contracted the sickness of sin through the disobedience of one man, Adam. It is in this way that the many have been made sinners, not as though they had transgressed with Adam, for they did not yet exist, but because they are of his nature, the nature that fell beneath the law of sin. So because of the disobedience of our common ancestor, Adam, which is sin, we have all been made sinners. But does that mean that we're guilty of his specific sin? No. It's because his nature changed after he committed sin. Remember that God is a source of life. And Adam existed in the presence of God. They were so close that Adam could even hear the voice of God or the sound of God walking in the garden. And as long as God was near to Adam, he enjoyed all of those wonderful things that I touched upon earlier. But once Adam chose to disobey God, he lost that communion with God he separated himself from God who is the source of life and that had an effect on his nature they were no longer clothed with glory that's why they knew that they were naked and you notice as well that adam began to fall into more sins what's the first thing he says when god questions him about you know what happened he says the woman that you gave me and then he questions eve the serpent told me so they start falling into these anxieties And these other sins, because now their nature has changed. And I don't know if you caught this detail, but after they are exiled from paradise, which, by the way, was an act of love. Don't think that God's exiling of Adam and Eve from paradise was a punishment in the sense that we understand punishment. It was an act of love. Because remember, Adam and Eve separated themselves from God. Their nature changed into something far worse, what we have now. Right? And remember that in the garden there was also the tree of life. And so what the Father says is that God in His love and His compassion did not want Adam and Eve to stretch out their hand and eat of the tree of life because then this existence that we have now, this fallen existence of pain and suffering would have been forever. It would have been eternal. And our lives would have literally become hell. But God in His love exiles Adam and Eve from the paradise. He places the cherubim there with a fiery sword so they cannot enter. And then I don't know if you caught this detail in Genesis, but God places upon them an animal skin. He covers them. First sacrifice. Oh, He covers them with an animal skin. And for God to get an animal skin, what does God have to do? He has to kill. So God sacrifices an animal. He kills an animal. And in doing this, He is showing Adam and Eve death because they've never seen death before. So he's telling them, this is what you have brought upon yourself. And then he covers them with the skin of the animal, reminding them that now their nature is no longer like it was, but it's more like the other creation, the animals, right? And don't we still do this today? Don't we still wear leather, right? And we carry leather purses. It's kind of almost like it's subconscious that we like to wear these things because we're reminding ourselves what happened, you know, after the fall. So this is, this is the sickness of sin. The nature of Adam and Eve changed, and because we were born of them, our nature is the same as their nature, which fell under the sickness or the malady of sin. And when you think about it, this concept is not really unjust. This concept can readily be seen in other you know, aspects of our life as human beings. Think about a mother who is pregnant. And she goes to her doctor, and the doctor says to her, nine months, no drunks, no alcohol. Imagine the mother ignoring the advice from the doctor, and she consumes a lot of alcohol. She gets drunk every day for those nine months. When the child is born, the child is sick. The child has something called fetal alcohol syndrome, right? He's very sick, the child. Did the child choose to drink? No. Does the child have to inherit the consequences of his mother's action? Yes. It's the same thing with us and Adam and Eve. We inherit the consequences of their action even though we ourselves didn't choose to sin as they didn't. It's hereditary in a sense, yes. So, we have been made sinners through the disobedience of our one common ancestor, Adam. And of course Eve, but I'm focusing on Adam because the father's focused on Adam. But there's hope for us. There is hope for us. Because just as our fall was tied to the sin of Adam, so also is our salvation tied to the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is called in the Holy Church the second Adam, the perfect Adam. As St. Paul wrote in his first epistle to the Corinthians, this is, by the way, the reading that we read on the night of the resurrection. This is the Pauline epistle on the night of the resurrection. St. Paul says, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. So the first Adam brought death and pain and suffering into the world. But the second Adam, the perfect Adam, he brings life and salvation to mankind. So in summary, this is the first reason that all of us must endure tribulations and suffering in the world today. It helps us greatly to understand that tribulations and suffering come simply because of the way things are in our fallen world. It's just the way things are because this is a fallen world. And this is a fallen creation. And our goal is to focus on the hope of Christ. That's what will help us get through it, is to focus on the hope of Christ. Some people, whenever tribulation comes, they blame themselves. They say, what did I do to deserve this? And I think it helps us to maybe answer the question and say, maybe nothing. Maybe you didn't do anything. But it's just the way things are. Okay? So that's the first reason. The second reason we have tribulations and suffering in the world today is to help us share in the life of Christ. To help us share in the life of Christ. You know, as Orthodox Christians, we proclaim the fact that Christ suffered as part of our very faith. It's our dogma. You know, and I say dogma and I use that to as a very heavy loaded word because not everything in the church is dogma. Dogma is very important because dogma is the core belief of the church. So we have a lot of other things that are not dogma. Like, for example, uh, if you notice today in the glorification to St. Joseph, there are a lot of details about St. Joseph's life and the account of the miracle that happened with his rod and the dove that he knew he was chosen to be, you know, the protector of the Holy Family. Yes, of course, our tradition, we believe it to be true. But is it dogma? No. It's not dogma. Dogma refers to the core belief of the church and the best expression of our dogma the most simple expression is our creed the nicene constantinopolitan creed which is the most simplified statement of our faith and in this creed we proclaim as members of the holy church that our lord jesus christ suffered and was buried right isn't that in the creed suffered and was buried and on the third day he rose from the dead right so it's part of our dogma Our faith, our core belief, that Christ suffered. And indeed, when we look at the life and the ministry of Christ, we see just how much He suffered. You know, oftentimes when we think about Christ's suffering, we think only about the cross and the physical anguish that He endured. But in reality, Christ suffered from the very moment He was born. Because He was born, of course, in a cave, when there was no place to hold Him elsewhere. And after he was born a short time, King Herod, in his envy, in his wickedness, he sought the, the child to kill him. So, of course, Christ fled from Bethlehem to Egypt. Of course, we're blessed, as, as you, know, you know, in our church, you know, the Coptic Orthodox Church, we're blessed that this happened because Christ blessed the Coptic land. But it was a tribulation that the Holy Family had to flee and go from Bethlehem into Egypt. Our Lord also suffered throughout His ministry. Indeed, when He began His ministry, do you remember this account? I believe it's in Luke. When He goes to His hometown, He goes to the synagogue, He opens the scroll, He reads from the prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah, and He reads the prophecy that was about Him. And then He declares to all of them, Today this prophecy has been fulfilled. Do you remember what His own people, the people He was raised with, Wanted to do? They wanted to stone him. They wanted to put him to death. These are his own people. So he suffers at the moment he begins his ministry. Later on we see how Christ had to avoid certain places because of the Pharisees and the Jews who wanted to put him to death. We remember that he had one disciple who betrayed him to death, Judas. And another disciple who denied him three times, St. Peter. And we remember that all of them abandoned him, except for St. John on the cross. And they doubted him after his resurrection. And many times they were faithless. And they didn't believe that he was the Messiah. He had to always remind them of who he was. He suffered in every single one of these instances. And all of these tribulations, of course, led up to the ultimate suffering the suffering on the cross, but even then it wasn't just the physical suffering. You know, what I oftentimes think about on Christ on the cross is not just the physical suffering, but what did He see? What did Christ see? First of all, looking from the cross, He saw Jerusalem. And you can hear His words when He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you know, the one who kills the prophets. How many times I wanted to gather you as the hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing so as he's suffering, he's looking at the very holy city, the city where he dwelt in the Old Testament, in the temple. He's looking at that very, that very holy city, and he's realizing that he's being put to death outside of the gates of that city. Do you know who was put to death outside the gates of the city? It was reserved for the worst criminals. Right. If you go back to Deuteronomy, you go back to the time of Moses, there was... A law, a, one a part of the Mosaic law that the worst offenders would be taken outside of the community and they would be put to death there. And the Jews, when they put Christ to death, they put him to death outside the community, outside the gates of the city. So he sees the city and that causes him great anguish. And then the people in front of him, the people that he's dying for, they're blaspheming, they're spitting upon him, they're treating him shamefully. Of course He's suffering because of that. It's not just the physical anguish, it's also that. And I think there's great wisdom that God did not reveal to us the words that were being said to Him, except only for, I think, one phrase. But we don't hear. There's no account of what the people were saying. Because I think if God permitted us to hear what was being said to Christ on the cross, I don't think any one of us could take it. I don't think any one of us could, could tolerate seeing that, that Christ's own children we are saying these things to Him. So, in all of this, we see, dear brothers and sisters, why it is part of the dogma of the Orthodox Church that Christ suffered. Indeed, He really suffered. And for us, as Christians bearing His name, what's the word Christian mean? It means literally, little Christ. As Christians bearing His name, we are called to suffer as well. As Christ told us in John 15, Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And since we strive to follow Christ, our greatest duty as Christians is to bear suffering just as he did. To live a life as a Christian in this world is to suffer tribulation and persecution. As St. Paul teaches us, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And interpreting this verse, St. John Chrysostom, he said, Anyone who pursues the course of virtue should not expect to avoid grief, tribulation, and temptations. Our Lord promised us, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. This is our mantra as Christians, that we are to be hated by the world and we must suffer tribulations and persecution. And if you read the Holy Scriptures, you will not find a single example of of a saint, or even in our Synexarion, you will not find a single example of a saint who did not fulfill his calling through suffering by one way or another. The holy Theotokos, Saint Mary, suffered greatly, even though she carried in her womb the eternal Word of God. She carried in her womb the Son of God, but that was not enough to save her from suffering. Remember when she goes to St. Simeon the priest and they present Christ? St. Simeon says, A sword shall pierce your own soul also. That was, of course, a prophecy of what she would experience at the foot of the cross. She suffered greatly. And our church in the ninth hour of the Agbeya, we have this wonderful uh, uh, troparion in which we stand in the place of St. Mary and we utter what she must have said at the foot of the cross. We sing, she's addressing her son. She says, The world rejoices in receiving salvation while my heart burns as I look at your crucifixion which you are enduring for the sake of all my Son and my God. St. Mary suffered even though God was inside of her for nine months. All of the saints suffered. St. Joseph, we heard today in the glorification, he suffered. This is an 80-year-old man who had to flee to Egypt with a young woman and her child. Right? St. Joseph suffered. St. Marina, the martyr, suffered. St. Maria, the ascetic, suffered when she was unjustly accused of being the father of that child. Even St. Anthony, who lived until the age of 105, was it an easy life, living in the wilderness in the desert by himself as a monk? It wasn't an easy life. He died a natural death. He wasn't a martyr, but he suffered. For the sake of Christ, if you read Vita Antony, The the Life of Antony, written by St. Athanasius, you see that at times the demons would appear to him physically and they would physically beat him in the desert, right? He suffered even though he died a natural death. The point, my brothers and sisters, is that this is the path towards Christ. It is sharing in his life. This is the means through which we encounter Christ. It is a sharing of his life. It is the means by which we fulfill our calling as Christians. So in light of this, would we agree with what the world says, that life must be smooth and easy? Would we curse God when a suffering comes? No. If a suffering comes or a tribulation comes, we give thanks to God because we say to God, you are allowing me to share in your suffering. That's how we respond as Christians. Thank you for allowing me to share in your suffering. I remember a story from uh, uh, one of the monasteries of Egypt. A woman in one of the monasteries was found next to one of the icons of St. Mary, weeping bitterly, crying and weeping. And a monk passed by, and he said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Who did this to you? And she answered him with her tear-filled eyes and said, No one did anything to me. My husband is in good health. My children are doing well. We have a house, we have enough to eat. So the monk looked at her puzzled and said, Why are you crying? And she said, Because God has not seen me worthy to visit me with a tribulation. Because he promised that those who are faithful will suffer, and I haven't suffered. And she was weeping, asking the holy Theotokos to pray that God would send her a tribulation. Look at that great faith. This is how Christians respond tribulation. tribulation. That's a good way of looking at it. Yeah. 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 I wonder what happened in her life. You know, maybe God visited her with something or maybe that was it. Yeah. But it's a good example of our mentality or what our mentality should be. It's the standard. It's the ideal. Of course, we know many of us are weak. We're not going to be like this, you know, In one after one lecture. It's not like a light switch, you turn it on, and now you're perfect. It takes time, you know. Maybe sometimes you're going to have a weakness, but the thing to remember is to always come back to God, come to the Holy Church, and hear the right response of tribulation, and then go out and practice it as much as you can. And God will help you. If God sees us, you know, doing a small thing, God will come and give us grace to enable us to make it, into a great work. Exactly. That's a very good example. Yeah, definitely. Uh, How would you explain uh, the whole tribulation right now between Russia and Ukraine? They're all orthodox, but they're killing each other every day. Yeah, it's a tragedy. I have some members of my family uh, not exactly in the area where they're killing, but not that far away. And I would tell you that Anytime I'm having a conversation on the phone, I'm literally like crying, pouring my tears through my you know, face and I just like I cannot believe it, there is no reason. So yeah. how would you explain that? There is no reason. They both are orthodox, they yeah. live for so many years, they you know, they go to the same churches in would you know, you, you know. I, I think I, it's wonderful that they're, they're, they're Orthodox, but I think the point to remember is, you know, if we can be Orthodox by name, but our actions also have to reflect, you know, what the Orthodox Church teaches. And sadly, what's going on is that it's not being reflected. You know, the love of brother, sister, not being reflected in this. There's, there are other political issues, you know, that are at stake, and those are the more pressing in the minds of the leaders. You know, Ukraine wants to be under the influence of the West and get protection from the West. Russia wants to assert its, you know, dominance of that whole region as it used to have, you know, during the Soviet times. So Putin, of course, is orthodox, but, you know, when he comes to make decisions, military decisions, is he thinking about his orthodox faith? I'm not sure. But certainly that's not what we're seeing on the ground. Because I don't think the orthodox church would ever teach that, you know, there could be a war because of this type of reason. It's not like one invaded the other, and you know, there's something at stake, in the safety of the people. I think this is just about influence in the region, and I think to an extent this is also a proxy war between Russia and the U.S. You know, that you know, I think it's really about those two powers, and I think they're trying to compete for you know, the dominance of the world. It has nothing to do with orthodoxy, even though it's an orthodox country, but the nice thing is that even though the leaders aren't reflecting this, we've seen so many nice pictures and videos of the Orthodox priests on the ground. You know, right there at the front of the, you know, the protests or the front of the, you know, the, the, the front lines of the war. You know, they're right there. And they're wearing their vestments and they're encouraging peace. That's a bright spot in all of this. Hopefully someone listens to them. But as long as people don't act according to their Christian faith, this is going to be the result. Right? So we pray for them, we pray for peace there and for the rest of the world, and, and hopefully uh, there will be a resolution soon. And of course, you know, the other point to remember is, is sometimes God permits these things because He will show His glory at the end. You know, I saw a wonderful example of that today, actually, a post on Facebook. Remember what we heard last week that ISIS, that fanatic, barbaric Islamic group that's he established a caliphate in Iraq and Syria. They blew up in Nineveh, the, the, the shrine of Jonah the prophet. This is the tomb of Jonah the prophet himself. There was a mosque there, and because they didn't agree with you know, that shrine, they blew it up. And I remember last week, we heard of this and our hearts dropped. And we said, how could this be? right? And a lot of people said, how could God allow this? This is the, the, the relics of Yunnan. The Jonah, the prophet. Today I read on, on Facebook that when they blew up the mosque, they found underneath the ancient 4th century Syriac monastery of Jonah. Oh, wow. Which has a piece of Noah's Ark. Wow. And the foundations of the church were not affected by the blast. The foundations are still intact. Mm-hmm. So it's something terrible that happened, but look look at God. He reveals something wonderful, that underneath the mosque, because over, of course, the mosque is this, you know, this, it shouldn't be there, right? mosque has nothing to do with Jonah. You know, the Muslims, they they oftentimes bother the Christians, and they build shrines on top of the places that the Christians revere. We see this throughout Jerusalem, right? The mosque shouldn't have been there. The church is the main thing. And so what what the fanatics did without realizing it is they exposed the church, And the foundation of a 4th century church stood up to the blast better than the foundation of the modern mosque. Right? So God has a way of manifesting His will and His glory throughout all of these things. And I think it will be the same in the Russia-Ukraine dispute, God willing. People will die, people will suffer, but in the end, God will be glorified. So don't worry, it will be okay. So that's the second reason why we're tribulation and suffering in the world today. It's because this is how we share in the life of Christ and how we fulfill our calling as Christians. The third reason, the final one I'll discuss for tonight, is that quite simply we suffer tribulations for our own good. Sometimes it's just for our own good. You know, if you were to listen to a lot of the preachers in our Western society... You know, they preach this gospel that basically says God exists only to protect us from every tribulation and pain and suffering. But this view is incomplete. It's not the whole story. Because God Himself, if you read the Holy Scripture, God Himself in Revelation chapter 3, verse 19, He says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. How do we understand this? On the one hand, we ask God to protect us and keep us from all evil. But on the other hand, we understand that when He permits us, when He permits us to suffer in some way, it is a function of His love for us. If God permits us to suffer in some way, it may very well be the only way to get our attention to help us make a true and sincere change in our life for the sake of our salvation. In Ezekiel chapter 33, God says, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should turn from his way and live. Turn! Turn from your evil ways, for why should you die? This is God's love for humanity, and this is why the Holy Church bestows upon God the title uh, Philanthropos. The lover of mankind. You hear that in our prayers. We entreat you, O philanthropic one. The one who loves mankind. Because that is his nature. He loves mankind. And these words assure us that God loves us. And he has a perfect desire for our salvation. So that reassures us that when a tribulation comes. If God has permitted it. If God has willed it. It's not a punishment. The time for punishment will come. But it's not now. If God has willed it in our present lives, then oftentimes it's the last way God is reaching out to us. It's the only way He can can get to us, so that we can turn our ways and come back to Him. Every tribulation has a salvific purpose. Every tribulation, in some way, is for our salvation. In A.D. 570, Ava Dorotheos of Gaza, who is one of the desert fathers of Palestine, he wrote the following words that, which I want to share with you. I think they're wonderful in explaining this point. Here's what he says. If a man has a friend and he is absolutely certain that his friend loves him, and if that friend does something to cause him suffering and be troublesome to him, he will be convinced that his friend acts out of love, and he will never believe that his friend does it to harm him. How much more are, ought we to be convinced about God who created us, who drew us out of nothingness to existence and life, and who became a man for our sake and died for us, and who does everything out of love for us? Did you, you get the point? If we have a friend, a close friend, and they do something that makes us suffer, we'll never accuse the friend of hating us. We'll say, I know you love us, it's just a mistake, no problem. So his point is, if we do that, if we have that reaction with our friends, why do we treat God differently? And when a tribulation comes, we say, how can a good God allow this? I'm not coming to church. I'm angry with God. I have a few words for God. Don't we oftentimes do that? It's because we don't understand God's love for us, and we don't understand that whatever suffering He has permitted is for the sake of our salvation. It's for the sake of our salvation. You know, in the kingdom of heaven... When all of those martyrs appear before God, they're not going to remember the suffering they endured. No one's going to remember how they suffered in the world, because they're going to feel the the glorious radiance of God. They're going to feel the love of God. They're not going to remember the suffering they endured, because that suffering is going to be not even a drop in an ocean compared to what they're experiencing. I mean, they're experiencing infinite love and joy, right? If you take your happiest moment in your life and multiply it by infinity, you're scratching the surface of what you're going to experience in the presence of God. So no one remembers the suffering. And if that is the case, then we know that even if we suffer, and it's a bitter suffering in this world, we remember that this is for the sake of our salvation. And when God crowns us, God willing in the end we will not remember how bitter it was. We will only experience the sweetness of the result of that tribulation. So that's the third reason why we suffer. So number one, because of sin. Not your own sin, but because sin exists in this fallen world. Number two, it's a way to allow us to share in the life of Christ because Christ suffered. That's part of the dogma of the church. Christ suffered and was buried. And number three, we say that uh, sometimes it's really the only way God can reach us for the sake of our salvation. That's the third reason for tonight. So in light of all of this, in light of what we heard about the certainty of tribulations and suffering, irrespective of where they come from, the question is not whether tribulation and suffering will come. We know that it will come. They will come, right? The question is, how are we to deal with them? And so now I'd like to turn to the second major section quickly uh, for the sake of time and speak about how we should respond to any tribulation and suffering in our lives. First of all, dear brothers and sisters, we must endure tribulations and suffering in the right way. Our Savior teaches us, He that endures to the end shall be saved. Endure everything that comes upon you to the end, and you will be saved. But this means that you must endure it skillfully, skillfully. Otherwise, you may not gain anything by your endurance. Mm -hmm. St. Theophan, the records, he gives a few points as to what it means to endure skillfully. He says, first of all, in the midst of any tribulation and suffering, we must keep the faith. So, number one, keep the faith and lead an irreproachable life according to that faith. So keep the faith. Don't doubt God when tribulation comes. Keep your faith and live according to that faith, even though it may feel difficult, even though you don't want to, because you're suffering so much. Force yourself to do that. And that's the first way we can endure in the right way. Secondly, accept everything that you are enduring as coming from the hands of God remembering that nothing happens without God's will. And of course, in the book of Job, we have a wonderful example of this understanding. As you remember, Job was a righteous man who came to endure several tribulations. He lost everything he had, including his own health and his family. And in response, he exclaimed the following, I came naked from my mother's womb. Naked also shall I return there. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. As it seemed good to the Lord, so it turned out, Blessed be the name of the Lord. If you can memorize this passage from Job chapter 1 verse 21, this will be your mantra for every tribulation. If you can memorize this or write it down somewhere and make this your prayer whenever you suffer, you will be greatly assisted in enduring the right way. This is a wonderful expression, and this is exactly, exactly the response of any Christian. Sure. I came naked from my mother's womb. Naked also shall I return there. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. As it seemed good to the Lord, so it turned out. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is the Christian's response to any tribulation. So that's the second way in which we endure. So number one, keep the faith. Number one, understand that everything that we suffer comes from the hand of God, and and remember that and act accordingly. Thirdly, give sincere thanks to God for everything, believing that everything that He sends is for the sake of our salvation. So not just remember that it comes from Him, but remember that it's coming from Him for a reason, which is our salvation. Right? So number one, again, just so we can get this drilled in our minds, number one, keep the faith. Number two, accept everything from the hands of God. And number three, remember that if it's coming from the hands of God, it's for our salvation. It's for our good in the end. We don't know how we're going to inherit the kingdom of God, but it might very well be through an illness, through a tribulation, through some kind of suffering. That might be the way that we are enabled to inherit the kingdom of God. And I think there's a wonderful example of this in the Holy Scripture. You know the story of the three great patriarchs, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you look at Abraham's life, he lived a faithful life, right? And God blessed him. His son Isaac, however, was greatly blessed. Isaac was born in the promised land. He never leaves the promised land. When he wants to get married, his wife is brought to him from another country into the promised land. He lives a very to a very old age, and he dies peacefully, right? His son Jacob, however, is different. Remember his son Jacob deceives his brother and father. He takes the blessing, and then he has to flee, right? Look at Jacob's life and compare it to his father's life. Jacob's life is one big tribulation. First of all, he flees from his brother. He goes to his relative, Laban, Laban right? He sees the woman he wants to marry. Laban tells him, Okay, work for her seven years, and I'll let you marry her. He works seven years. On the night of the wedding, Laban pulls a switcheroo, marries marries him to her sister. He wakes up and says, Who are you? And, you know, the father says, "Uh, I'm sorry, but, you know, she had to get married first. If you want Rachel, the one that you really love, work another seven years. He says, Okay, another seven years he works. He works in those seven years. Things are not good between him and his family, right? Finally, he decides he's going to leave. So he leaves. First, his father-in-law pursues him, but finally they escape. As they are traveling, he wrestles with God. He wrestles with God. And then after he wrestles with God, he sees his brother Esau coming with 400 men. And he's frightened. He says, what's going to happen? Is he coming to kill me? What's going to happen? So he makes this plan to make sure that his family can escape. And thank God, it works out for the best. Esau's not there to kill him. They reconcile, and he moves on. Right? As he's traveling more, we know that he has several children. But his beloved son, uh, Joseph, and then of course Benjamin, his beloved two sons, Joseph and Benjamin, are born. And when Benjamin is born, his wife, Rachel, the one... He loves, she dies. And then we know what happens with Joseph, right? Sold into slavery by his brothers. He thinks Joseph is dead for his almost, you know, this 20 years or so, he thinks, or 25 years, he thinks Joseph is dead. And then at the end of that whole story, Joseph is playing with, with the brothers to the point that he's threatening the life of Benjamin, So Jacob is now also worried about Benjamin, saying, I lost Joseph, my beloved, now I'm about to lose Benjamin, my next beloved. He suffers greatly, right? And St. John Chrysostom, he tells us in his commentary on Genesis, he tells us that the reason that Jacob suffers so much is because of his deception at the beginning of his story. Because he deceived his father and brother, right, of course it was the will of God, but it was still something that was a sin. That's what St. John tells us. And God in His love, not wanting to punish Jacob in the next life, allowed him to suffer in his life on earth. And I'm just giving you this example to show you a little bit about maybe how God works. We can't understand, but of course we can look at the little examples that God gives us and we can study them. He lets Jacob suffer so much because he wants to purify Jacob of that sin so that when Jacob finally departs this world he stands before God pure right and that's oftentimes what God does with each and every one of us and our salvation is born out of that exactly. yes yeah. exactly yes fourth so we've mentioned 3 number 4 Love tribulations for the sake of its great power of salvation. So, even though it's bitter, thirst for what's bitter, because you know that that bitter drink has healing. Fifth, keep your thoughts, keep in your thoughts that when misfortune comes, you can't throw it off quickly, you must bear it with patience. Okay? That's number five. Sixth, realize, I like this one, I think this one is very important because it's lacking among many of us today. Sixth, realize that you deserve a greater punishment, a greater tribulation than what you're suffering. Recognize that if the Lord wanted to deal with you as you rightly deserve, He would have sent you something much worse because you deserve more. Remember that whatever you're deserving, it's small in in comparison to your own sins. Seventh, above all, pray so that the merciful Lord will give you a strength of spirit. Uh, I remember the famous words of His Holiness Pope the Third of thrice-blessed memory. His three words in all tribulations. He said them in Arabic, but I translated them. Number one, God exists. Number two, it will all end up for the good. And number three, every tribulation has a definite end. Those are his three words. God exists. It will all end up for the good, and every tribulation has a definite end. And I would add a small amendment, every tribulation in this world has a definite end, but there is one tribulation that has no end, and that is the fires of hell. That's the one that won't end. But everything else has an end. So if you remember that, it will help you get through it. So, we know the first three quickly, just to review the last uh, uh, four. Uh, love, tribulation for the sake of its power of salvation, thirst for that bitter water which has healing in it. Fifth, keep your thoughts, keep in your thoughts that you must be patient and bear the tribulation for as long as God wills. Sixth, realize you deserve even a greater punishment, a greater misfortune. And seventh, above all, pray and God will give you the strength to endure the tribulation. Okay? I have a lot more to say, but for the sake of time, I think we're going to end here. Uh, but I can take some questions if, if you would like. If you have any questions on Yes? Do you have on a word file? I have my notes, yes. Would you like to email them? Sure. If you give me your email address, I'd be happy to email it to you. And we also have the audio, if you like. It was recorded, the audio as oh, well. yeah? yeah. It'll be on the website? Or? Um, maybe we can put it on the website, sure. Better at reading. Okay, then also just give me your email after the end. At the end, and then we can. I'm sorry. I, have to run. I know it's okay. Very nice to meet you. God bless you and your family, and we're praying for your family. God help them.